Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I think transitional moments in our lives are, it's very important to put them together like a string of beads for yourself so you'll remember and know where they are if you can. You know, I like to listen to and read a lot of philosophical things, things that suggest, you know, if you just get out of the way, your life will unfold like it's some kind of magic thing. And you know what? Sometimes it is a magic thing. You could sit next to someone whose work you've long admired, but who's always been a person on the TV. Someone you never, ever, ever thought you would meet. And so you live your life, you go to the concert that your friend invites you to, and you sit down and something says, turn your head. Yay. Which is exactly what I did. Yay. And there she was, sitting there, just beautiful and calm and relaxed. I'm Helga Davis, and this is my conversation with Judy Collins. Judy, let's even, let's just start talking about okay, it. Okay, let's just talk. Because what I feel is interesting about our meeting and why it's so wonderful that you're here, it's like we've met in reverse. I had yes. gone to the Beacon Theater for God's Love We Deliver. Oh. And it was very, very loud. Mm. And so I went outside and I got some earplugs. And I came back to my seat And it's like something said, turn your head. And I looked to my right, and there you were. And I said, I'm going to offer Judy Collins earplugs. (laughs) Oh! And I offered you earplugs. Oh, for heaven's sake. Do you remember? Oh, yeah. And then you said, may I have a pair for my husband? Oh, (laughs) Oh, greedy Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And so we were able to protect our hearing during that concert. It was very loud. The other thing that was interesting about that evening is that there was a woman behind me who said, would you mind if I had a pair also? And I said, of course not. (laughs) And she said, I'll pay you for them. I'll pay. I'll pay. And I said, "It's, it's okay. You can have them. And then a couple minutes went by, and then the person she was with said, give her the money. (laughs) And she tapped me on the shoulder again, and I said, I really don't want your money. She wanted to give me $20. Um, But it also said something to me about the time that we're in and how we can be less than generous with Mm. one another. Mm -hmm. And then I got the email Mm. inviting me to come to Joe's Pub and participate in your Vanguard Artist Evening. And I was asked to sing Wings of Angels. You know, it's hard enough Mm. to cover someone else's music, but let's talk about when it's you, and then let's talk about when you're sitting there in the audience. And so there I was with this song, And I didn't know what it meant to you. Like, I knew, but I didn't know. Yeah. And so, aside from being nervous about singing it because you were in the audience, I wanted very much to get out of the way 
mm. because there isn't anything you need to do to the song. Yeah. And I wanted to be sure to connect my heart to your song. Thank you. Well, of course, the song that you sang is the song I wrote about my son's death, Wings of Angels. And I even have trouble singing that song. I don't often sing it because I have to be very, very clear of any outside things that may get in the way of it. And when I heard you do it, I just was so moved, so deeply moved, not only by the song and the, the fact of what it is about, but your singing was gorgeous and transportive. Mm. And it just sent me into a totally different place. But I've never heard a singer, as you did, take such beauty and put it into the song and make it so transportive. It was really my honor to give that back to you. Well, we were, my husband and I were spellbound. You know, we said, oh, my God, what an artist. What a great artist this is. And Helga, I've now, I'm a fan. I now, you know, I've, you revealed a lot of things to me, and uh, I treasure them. As do I. Thank, Thank you. you so much. It reminds me, then, to ask you about being on a path, being on your path. There's a wonderful, wonderful quote from Joseph Campbell, if I can share that with Please. you for a second. They thought that it would be a disgrace to go forth as a group. Each entered the forest at a point that he himself had chosen, where it was darkest and there was no path. If there is a path, it is someone else's path, and you are not on the adventure. Mm. <laughs> you know, you started out covering other people's songs, and one could say that that wasn't necessarily your path, because eventually you went on to write your own songs. Well, music is its own path, and of course interpretive musicians are what it's all about, because everybody who writes music, including opera writers, etc., depend on the people who are going to take this work and then transform the rest of the world with this work. Mm -hmm. uh, this is true for, of course, every, for every composer, Chopin, Debussy. I grew up playing those. I started playing the piano when I was about five and singing the songs that my father was making his living singing, which were Rogers and Hart songs. But my life was engaged in... Performance, learning how to perform, learning how to take the instrument that I have, that I was born with, of course, take care of it. How That's the that? great center of the path is taking care of the instrument because otherwise you have nowhere to go on the path, mm -hmm. at least with what, what you want to do with singing. So that was my path to study, to perform. I was singing in public since I was five or six years old, going on my father's radio show, learning to be... 80 years old and have a career that's 60 years long and still do 120 shows a year and write songs and try to focus always on getting some practice in every day. Mm -hmm. It's chop wood and carry water. That's the path. And whatever your instruments are, you must learn to do them. Mm -hmm. Being able to sing somebody else's music is a privilege, but also it's a work in progress. Falling in love with a piece of music 
was always the key. Mm. When I was first starting with studying with Dr. Brico, her process, she was this monumental woman who came into my life at the age of 11, my age. She was startling, extraordinary, Dutch-Italian woman born out of wedlock and transported to uh, the States from from Holland when she was uh, about four and a half, five years old, and made her way to become one of the great conductors in the world. What was she like with you as a teacher? Oh, she was wonderful. And she grabbed me at 11 years old and said, uh, little Judy, have you cut your nails? Oh. And... I, of course, stayed close to her. It broke her heart, of course, that I stopped playing. I had to tell her I was going to play the... She wanted me to play that with the orchestra. But then I said, no, thanks, I'm getting a guitar and so on. So, of course, but I knew her story. I had sat as a student of hers on Saturday afternoons after we had lunch together, and I played all my pieces, and then we listened to the opera from New York City, from the Metropolitan. And then I would... She would sometimes, or her assistant, would ask me if I would help her file her press clippings from all over the world. Mm-hmm. And I would sit there looking at photographs of her with Toscanini and uh, with Casals. I had met Casals. I felt I knew him personally. He came to play for one of our one of our sessions. So you saw all of that, and you saw the success she had, and yet you say you turned yourself into a folk singer. Mm-hmm. And tell me how, how that was transformative for you, to cultivate activism and to make yourself into the Judy who's sitting here with us today. Well, I go back and talk more about my childhood. My father was an activist, a born activist. He was born blind, practically blind, and by the age of four he couldn't see squat. And um, he was incredibly talented, of course. He was musically driven. He wanted me to have the right kind of training. Mm -hmm. And he was an activist. He had a radio show for 30 years, and he used to talk about all the things that were taboo. He used to say, how could I be prejudiced? I'm a blind man. I can't even see what you look like in the first place. He would talk about McCarthy. He would talk about the war in Vietnam. So we'd sit at the table in the kitchen for dinner or for breakfast and talk politics and in fighting fights that needed to be fought. And so then you get the music coming at you, which is consisting of Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger and This Land is Your Land and uh, We Shall Overcome. And I don't believe that one can write a song about issues, which is not heartfelt and beautiful and forever lasting. I think a lot of people who try to write songs about issues of the moment get lost in the technicality of who, what, where, and when and forget about the art of the melody and the poetry. But rarely when one is written and lasts forever, I do think it changes the world. So here's a piece that seems to have lasted forever, Amazing Grace. Yes, how, how do you navigate knowing the history and having it still be something that is important to you that you must sing? Well, first of all, it's, it's one of the great songs ever written by anybody. And when I learned it, when I ha- had it in my head because my grandmother would sing it, 
I don't think she knew a thing about John Newton or who or it came from or who he really was right. or what happened in his life, but she knew it and she taught it to me. And I was, by the time it happened, that is my recording of it, I had been desperately trying to figure out from the time I was in my teens what the hell was the matter with me because I couldn't stop drinking. And um, I went one night to a dinner party with my friend Tom Hoving and his wife. And there was a guy there, African-American, tall, beautiful-looking man named Candy Latson. And he had just escaped from a place called Sinanon, in California, that was Chuck Dietrich's drug rehab community. And you were not allowed to escape from Synanon. Once you were in, you're supposed to stay for life. And this, after all, was 1969. And Candy got himself to New York and got involved with the Phoenix House and started leading encounter groups. And he, I was introduced to him that night at this cocktail party. And I told him that a f- bunch of friends and I were going to go up to... Vermont, and look for property. And he said to me, until you encounter one another, you can't live together in Vermont in any property. (laughs) And Candy Lassen... You you encountered Candy? (laughs) I encountered Candy. He encountered a bunch of us. Oh, dear. And we never looked for land in... uh, And this this group went on. We'd meet at each other's hearts. And Candy Latson brought in a man, I swear to God, named Sandy Jackson. And Sandy Jackson and Candy Latson led us these Upper West Side, middle class, mixed race, mixed religions, mixed interests, led us in encounter groups. And one day, and my, my producer was in that group, and one day in 69, my producer said, I think you better sing a song because everybody's trying to kill each other in this group tonight. Everybody's at each other's throats. So, Why don't you sing a song? Hmm. So I sang Amazing Grace. Oh. And just everybody just went, ah. Oh. Oh. And the next day, and, you know, everything calmed down. It was fine. Everything was love and joy and peace once again. Hmm. And the next day he called me up and he said, well, we have to record it. And I had no knowledge about where it would come from. So it immediately became, and, you know, my record label, Lecter, was... What do you mean, acapella? Him? That everybody is now singing? Everywhere? It's a huge hit? How did this happen? And they were smart enough to do all the things that they should do with the, with the song. And that was excellent. And you made it, again, Yeah, part of the American imagination. Exactly, which I had no idea I was doing because... All I knew was that it was a great song and that it had a power. When I sang it in public at any kind of occasion, in a church, at a gathering of people of very mixed backgrounds, some of them religious, some of them not, some of them atheists, some of them hippies, everybody responds to this song. And what is it for you, though? I think that it comes from what happened to John Newton. I think it's... His shipwreck, he was a slave ship captain, and he was, you know, he was a renegade, he was a bad guy, he was doing something that was really looked down upon, and he had a shipwreck in which he survived, some people died, and it was in Derry in Ireland. The shipwreck was on the coast of Derry. Anyway, he came out of the shipwreck alive and not dead and said, okay, 
I got to change my life. And was that a message for you also? Oh, yes. I think transitional moments in our lives are, it's very important just to put them together like a string of beads for yourself. So you'll remember and know where they are if you can. But to look at them in something, in some other person, he then changed his life entirely. He went to a place called Olney and wrote Amazing Grace and a lot of other songs with a fellow named Cowper. And there are many hymns in many hymn books that are credited by Cowper and uh, and Newton, but and how he, did it change your life? Oh, I don't know. It probably kept me kept me alive long enough to get sober. And also his influence on a man named Wilberforce. Wilberforce was a parliamentarian in England who had been trying to pass a bill against the slave trade mm-hmm. for decades. It took him 20 years to pass it, but he kept going to Olney and talking to John... Newton, who kept saying to him, keep at it, keep at it, just Mm. keep at it, don't Mm. give up. Mm. And I think that's probably the message that Amazing Grace also has for me, don't Mm. give up. Was there anyone around you who understood that you were struggling with alcoholism? Did they try to intervene at all? Or was that just a thing of the times for everyone? And they say, okay, well, Judy drinks. I don't even think that there was any question of talking about it. I was a very well-put-together drunk. Mm-hmm. I plaqued out almost every night of my life, but I, was, I, was, <laughs> I had a certain style about the whole thing that led people to say, how could she be an alcoholic? You're successful. Mm-hmm. You look great. I worked my ass off to look great. Mm-hmm. I, would not, I would do anything not to get fat. I would do anything not to fall apart. My mother was a wonderful woman who didn't really drink much, but my father, who was a complete workaholic and a brilliant man and drank and would also get up in the morning and be happy and smiling no matter how much, no matter that he'd passed out and been in despair the night before, but he was up and happy and joyous. And my sister and I were talking about it recently, and she said he would always be singing happy. But the depression was definitely chemical. I know that about depression now. There's no question in my mind that it's that's a chemical issue, that it has to do with DNA. And if you add liquor to that fire, uh, which I did pretty quickly, by 15 I was drinking a lot. And so by the time I was 19, I knew I, had, I, knew I was an alcoholic because I could feel that hole in my chest that I knew my father had and the despair which I would feel from time What's to time. What's the hole in your chest? Oh, it's just a term for what looked to me like the end of the world when I'd see him staggering in at the end of a drinking bout. And uh, I knew I had it. And it was terrifying. On the other hand, I thought to myself, well, if I'm an alcoholic, well, let me do this right. Hmm. And I did it right, as far as I could until the last couple of years. And then it just about killed me. But before that, I had the balance of... The perfectionism, the workaholism, and the alcoholism, and they all allowed me to have an extraordinary career where I did not show, I did not break dates, I did not screw up, I I showed up on time, I was responsible, I was creative, and I was surrounded by creative and positive people. So I was very lucky in that sense. It's possible to have a big career when you're drinking. I've done it. I did it for 20 years almost, but I was fortunate because I was almost dying, So, 
and I was intervened by a doctor in New York and sent to treatment in 1978. And I was ready, and I got it, and I'm one of the lucky ones. And by the way, there are a lot of lucky ones. Uh, the 12-step programs and Alcoholics Anonymous work. I always go to meetings. I will never not go to meetings. And at 41 years, I love them more and more. I, I mean, they are the basis of my being on the planet. And I had also completely trashed my career. What happened? I was a drunk, and it caught up with me. And so where did the bulimia come in? So you would do anything not to gain weight. Yeah, I thought I, I thought I invented it. I didn't even hear about it from my girlfriends who were in the sports world. Mm. I just said one day, ah, I get it, uh, so I'll throw up. I was always either under eating or, you know, I cut this out. I was restricting with that. It was always to keep drinking. Huh. If I went on the Atkins and he said you could have a shot of whiskey and also just eat beef, I mean, what a perfect diet for a, a, an anorexic, bulimic, alcoholic person. Anyway, it had the vocal loss, which was I was dealing with in 1977 when I couldn't work at all. And I had to cancel, I think, like 45 shows or something that year. And uh, this was not good news for my record label. I mean, they were working hard on Sending the Clowns again. It was out again, and it was already in the top 10. And then I was lucky because I had the surgery, which took off the hemangioma from the vocal cord. And I was still drinking in October of that year, of 77. But the voice was fine. Hmm. It was coming back. It was fine. It was a very unusual and new surgery. It was a laser surgery, and my doctor, whom I just adored, had said to me, you know, if you don't have it, if you do have it, you might have a chance. It's new. I don't know what could happen. It's laser. Everybody's over the moon about laser, but I don't know. Maybe it'll work, maybe not, because mm -hmm. I haven't done it before, he said. Mm. But I can tell you something. If you do have it, we got a chance here, and if you don't, you're just not going to be able to sing anymore. So I had it, <laughs> and I had it in October of 77, and slowly by January, February, I knew that I was okay. Did you go back to singing lessons after the I surgery? never stopped. Uh -huh. I never, ever stopped. I mean, my teacher and I were like this from 1965 to 30, thir for 32 years I studied with him. So all through that, he was there with me mm -hmm. and helping me to psychologically and practically get through this. So, of course, what happened was it was it was coming back. I was working on it. We were doing all the things we always did, the clarity, the phrasing. And I wouldn't be here without having studied with Max all those years. That's for, That I know for sure. And again, you know, he, he was a hard ass. He wasn't like Brico. He wasn't a pushover. He wasn't soft and sweet and cuddly and gracious. Even when I walked out on her, he was... And he was also a doll, but he was very, you know, he, you'd go, okay, so sing me a few notes. He'd go, la, 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 la. And he'd say, no. No. I mean, the whole point of what he taught is bel canto singing. And that's where you are able to bridge the break in the voice that everybody has right. and be clear clear from the, you know, because right. you know this, because you're a beautiful, beautiful singer. I was blown away by your singing. 
blown <laughs> away. I don't say that to I know anybody. I know you don't. <laughs> Thank you again, because I'm, I'm learning to receive. You're welcome. It's my privilege to tell you how good you are. I'm thinking about my singing teacher, who died a few years ago mm. at 101. And I was next to her, and the people who were in the room said, I think she would really like it if you would sing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she had not been conscious for a long time, and we were waiting. Mm -hmm. she, she, they couldn't pronounce her dead because the heart would not stop. <laughs> And I think you have to not have a heartbeat for four minutes or something like that yeah. before they can pronounce you. And, you know, at Kip. three and 50, it would go ba-boom. Mm. And so I sat next to her and I started to sing a little bit. I was very sad, though, if I may say one thing in my defense. And even from this place, <laughs> she said, no, darling, <laughs> not like that. <laughs> Just like Max. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it. Even in death. I love it. Even even here, <laughs> you're, you're going to correct me. <laughs> and so I tried again. And I don't know that I did anything differently. I don't, I don't know what I did. And she said, yes, darling, yes. <laughs> and that was it. That was my last moment oh, with her. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, that's wonderful. But like you, I also had to leave her. I think there's a, yeah. there's a thing about having to leave home many, mm -hmm. many, many times yeah. so that you can grow when you're curious, that you have a place yeah. to express that. And these old teachers, it's like there's a book, there's a perfect sound and my teacher was very, very much from that school, yeah. that there's, a, there's perfect placement, there's a perfect sound. Yeah. And like your teacher, she was mortified that I didn't want to sing Carmen and that I didn't want to sing and that I didn't want to sing all these other things. And I would say to her, Madam Federova, there are people all over the world who will always sing that music. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want you to help me Learn who I am. Mm -hmm. Help me to learn about my instrument. Yeah. So that I can be of service to the world. Mm -hmm. And not just a particular part of the world. Yes. Right? Very true. Because I sat in her seats at the Met. <laughs> uh-huh. That were eight rows from the stage yes. center. Yeah. And she had those seats for 20-something years, mm -hmm. and that was not a small thing. She sent me to hear Carmen, hoping <laughs> <laughs> that I would fall in line. Yeah, yeah. And I was the only black person in the audience. Right. And I just, I didn't want to do that. Yeah, I understand. I didn't have that, and I don't have that thing to prove. Yeah. And I know that that's not all there is to that singing and to that style and to that work, but that's what it was for me. Yeah. Because her feelings were so strong about how I must rise above some something mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. be the one. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
But you are the one. (laughs) (laughs) Judy! (laughs) Enough is enough. (laughs) But you are. You know, there's something so wonderfully unique and beautiful and you about what you do. I I love you sharing this story about your teacher and what happened at that moment when she was was leaving. Mm -hmm. And when mine was leaving, I was up to see him and he was dying... And um, I leaned over and he said, he whispered, it's going to be all right. Mm. All you have to do is think about clarity and phrasing. Mm. And then it was goodbye. Goodbye, Max. <laughs> mm. You know, we let the, the beauty pour through from wherever that place in us that is us. And we have to find that place that is us. Yeah. And... And then it allows whatever it is who's you to come out and we can hear you. (laughs) You've given our nation such a clear and forward, moving, forward-thinking voice from which to choose how we treat each other, to Mm, choose the the, the kind of people and the kind of society, the kind Mm. of people we want to be and the kind of society we want to live in. What more do you, do you see yourself doing? In what other ways do you see yourself participating in that way? And is that still important to you? Or are you, are you looking to do other kinds of things now? I know you're going to be on the road, but you gave us back amazing grace. Yes. I, I do, as I said before, 120 shows a year. For the most part, for, with the exception of those two years when I really was out of it and, and shut down, I have been on the road. And that's what I'm good at. That's what I do best. I have done television shows. I've put together albums. I've put together probably 50 or so albums over the years. I'm making others. I have ones that are coming up in the future. but So what I do is to make records of some sort and put them somewhere, either on iTunes or on the road. We sell them. But I'm, I'm good at what I do. And the concerts... And you know that, which is a big, big thing. Well, it's a responsibility because I think that it's a service to people. You know, I'm sitting up there singing and loving it. I love it. And I'm in my own dream of whatever it is that's going on. And so is that audience, and they're sitting there in the dark for about an hour and a half, maybe two hours, and they're, they don't have a chance to do that very much. They don't sit in silence. People in general don't sit in silence. I mean, that's one of the powers of the 12-step programs. You don't usually sit around for one hour in silence listening to someone else share their stories with you. Then you respond maybe for two minutes, in the audience in a concert, you don't ex- respond except to clap, maybe. And while they're thinking, they could be changing their lives completely. Mm. They could suddenly think of some solution that they hadn't thought of before. And it is a service. I know it's a service. I know that live, ser- live music and, and, and uh, performances that have depth and that have a little more than fireworks and fancy costumes. I think that there is something dynamically that happens, and it's it's good for me, it's good for them. 
I don't ever intend to stop doing it for as long as I can do it. And for me, that's the most of what I can contribute. A lot of people do a lot of other things. Yes, I write a lot of poetry. I write a lot of books. I write songs. And sometimes I get to record them and sing them for people. And I have a moment at the piano in all my shows where I, I sit down by myself at the piano, and I usually play some of the new things I'm working on. So that's terribly important. And the privilege of having an outlet for what you do in private, <laughs> that's really pretty hot. <laughs> you know? Last thing, Judy Collins, it's half hour before the show. What are you doing? I'm in my dressing room. I've turned myself into Judy Collins now. What does that mean? Well, I got my makeup on. My my uh, my face is done. I'm ready to roll. I've done my practicing. Then my wonderful companies comes out. We play a few songs, test the guitar, test the sound, and then we have some dinner. And then I go into isolation, and I might even take a nap. And then I go on, and when I'm done, I scamper out of there like a bunny rabbit and go to the hotel and go to sleep. All the more reason that I appreciate your speaking with me after the Vanguard Gala. Oh, yes. That was was I knew that you must have been (laughs) exhausted. No, I was inspired. I was uh, not exhausted. No. Okay. It was very, the whole night was inspirational and wonderful. It was beautiful for us. And I feel, again, so honored to have been asked to participate and to sing that particular song. And so I'm going to sing it again. Next Good. Friday. Oh, for beautiful. You. I'm going to hear it. And I will for sure be doing my best to make you proud. I know I will be proud. Already I am. Thank you, Judy. Thank you. God bless. And you. And that was my conversation with Judy Collins. I'm Helga Davis. If you want more of these conversations, subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and share with a friend. You can also leave a comment. It really helps us out. Helga is produced by Crystal Hawes Dressler and myself. Our technical director, composer, and sound designer is Curtis McDonald. Lucas Krohn Grimberger is our executive producer. Special thanks to WNYC's program director, Jacqueline Zincata and Alex Ambrose. Be sure to visit us online at wnycstudios.org slash Helga.